Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The presidential campaigns of 2016 have been unlike any others. On the Republican side, Donald Trump has pretty much driven the narrative, and much of that narrative has not been issue-specific. For Democrats, presumptive nominee Hillary Clinton has had to fend off the campaign of challenger Bernie Sanders. Other than terrorism and immigration, neither candidate has addressed foreign policy that often, and America's place in the world as much as they have some domestic issues. So what kind of foreign policies would a President Clinton or a President Trump have? We'll look ahead on today's program. Joining us, Dr. Christopher Dolan, professor of politics and director of global studies at Lebanon Valley College. Dr. Dolan, welcome to the program. Hi, Hi, Scott. Good morning. Also joining us is Dr. Nicholas Clark, assistant professor of political science at Susquehanna University. Dr. Clark, welcome to the show. Thanks. Let me tell our listeners that uh, if you would like to join in the conversation, talk about foreign policy over the next hour, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I'm going to start with a very, very broad question before we get into some specifics about terrorism, trade, immigration, all those things. But what kind of foreign policy would you see during a Clinton administration, Dr. Dolan? I would say with a Clinton presidency, you would have an affirmation of 70 years of American foreign policy. Since the end of the Second World War, the U.S. has sought to build uh, what many political scientists and international relations experts would call a liberal global world order premised on trade liberalization through the the world trade what became the world trade organization currency exchange uh, through the international monetary fund and a security architecture premised on NATO in Europe and multilateral and bilateral security alliances in in Asia and uh, the Middle East I think with her you would see an affirmation of that liberal world order and a continuation of it and also I think that Hillary Clinton would be much more not necessarily confrontational but certainly more assertive than the current administration, the Obama administration. So I think you'd see an affirmation of consensus, 70 years of consensus in American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Dr. Clark, what do you think about a Hillary Clinton foreign policy? Oh, I agree. I think it would largely be uh, continuing what we've seen, not just with the Obama administration, but also the Bush administration before that. Um, I don't see here diverging in large part from what we have now, uh, particularly on issues of trade. You could see more of an emphasis or focus, I think, on uh, humanitarian issues, on development, uh, because that's been one of the hallmarks of her campaign in regards to this. But, uh, and I agree that she could be potentially more aggressive with certain uh, other powers, but for the most part, it's going to be much of what we've already seen. Now, when you say more aggressive, and Dr. Dolan, you said more assertive, you mean then the current administration rather than comparing with Donald Trump? Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Donald Trump. Dr. Clark, what do you, how do you see a foreign policy of uh, Donald Trump? Well, I think if, if uh, a, a Clinton administration would be more of the same, a Trump administration would be very different. And not just from the Obama administration, but really... Uh, as Dr. Dolan said, from about the last 70 years that we've seen. Uh, so we, I mean, we would see a pullback in terms of trade, uh, probably most immediately. Um, you'd see the United States pull out of negotiations with uh, Europe uh, for the transatlantic trade agreement and, and reverse course on the trans-Pacific trade agreement. Um, and uh, presumably, 
uh, any number of agreements that we already have in place, both with our allies and with our rivals, uh, they, they would be uh, open to renegotiation. That's what he signaled, that he would seek a better deal uh, for Americans. He's talked about that a lot, and he's uh, cited his business background and uh, you know, bragging that he's a heck of a negotiator. He's used other words, a heck of a negotiator, and he thinks that, uh, yeah, we have deals, but we have bad deals, and he's you know, talked about the renegotiating those deals. Dr. Nolan, how do you see a Trump uh, foreign policy? Yeah, I, I see his presidency as something that would question that liberal global world order. He's, he's talked about shaking the rust off of American foreign policy, and how I interpret that is he would look at something, for example, like uh, uh, NATO and say, we are going to sort of make our allies pay up, pay more in terms of their contributions to that security alliance, and that the United States needs to assume what's called a, in, in his words, an America first security orientation, which means a, uh, he, he views a world in sort of U.S.-centric terms. He has also recently come out and praised Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi as uh, killers of terrorists and so on and so forth. He's also questioned um, uh, the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the uh, TTIP uh, in Europe. And I think that for the most part, what that suggests to me is that he would reverse course on 70 years of American foreign policy. And he would, he would um, sort of not just reverse course, but uh, what he's suggesting is flies in the face of Republican orthodoxy on international trade, for example. The Chamber of Commerce recently just came out and said that uh, we can't endorse his proposals on trade. Mm. You know, there there are so many things there that uh, the two candidates are very, very different when it comes to foreign policy. This is probably a good issue to start with uh, when comparing the two. Uh, but the one in particular, I want to talk about specifics. I have a kind of a list of uh, made some, the Washington Post made a comparison of, of the two candidates and where they stand a lot of these issues. But leaving NATO... I don't remember, you know, he talked, that was an extreme part of it, but as you said, pulling back from NATO, having the other NATO partners contribute more, that's something that you have not heard from any American president, at least in my memory, maybe never. I mean, that's significant. Yo, oh, Absolutely. It's been a, a formal security architecture. It's become more of a political project in the wake of the collapse of the Cold War. Um, it's it's a democracy-building project in addition to a collective defense, collective security alliance, and it's been a force of stability. It's helped to prevent, in, along with the EU, it's helped to prevent um, the outbreak of another major war in Europe. So I think that for the most part, uh, that criticism of NATO is something I agree that we have not seen from an American president. And that, again, is why I think foreign policy is a major issue. I mean, it, foreign policy never is something that's on the minds of most Americans. The economy is when they go into the right. um, uh, the voting booth to vote on Election Day. But I do think that there are major, significant, almost philosophical differences between these two candidates. And Trump's uh, Donald Trump's uh, criticism of NATO sort of cuts to the heart of what it means to feel sort of resentful towards your allies who you feel are not paying paying up and um, and stepping forward. And this is sort of consistent with the Obama administration. The president said uh, not too long ago in the famous Jeffrey Goldberg article that free riders aggravate him. And he was really targeting Saudi Arabia, but he also sent that message to our European allies as well. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Dr. Clark, 
you know, there may be a, a lot of people out there who would disagree with this, but maybe even some Obama supporters, some people who uh, have looked at the Obama administration and said it's been a success, most of the time they point to economic or domestic issues. Um, there haven't been as many successes in foreign policy for the Obama administration. And we live in dangerous times, even though Americans a lot of times do decide their vote based on the economy. Those who are I mean, this used to be a Republican issue almost exclusively. But those who are thinking about terrorism, those who are thinking about manufacturing jobs, all those things. Do they go to Donald Trump? Uh, if you're talking about uh, previous uh, supporters of democratic regimes, there's at least that possibility. Um, although I think that that, if we see any crossover from uh, traditional democratic voters, it's going to be more on the trade issue than the security issue, uh, because that's where Trump is speaking to them in a way that uh, uh, no other politician really has. I don't know that you're necessarily going to see a lot of crossover. Uh, based on terrorism with those particular voters. Let me just read a couple quotes here from the two of them. Uh, key quote from the Washington Post uh, on trade. Uh, Hillary Clinton says, any trade deal has to produce jobs and raise wages and increase prosperity and protect our security. Now, one of the things that surprised a lot of people was that uh, NAFTA, Hillary Clinton's husband, uh, former president Bill Clinton, was a champion of NAFTA. That was a bipartisan issue. She's, uh, I won't say she, she still supports it, but then the Trans-Pacific uh, trade deal, she doesn't support. Neither does uh, Trump. Now, a quote from Trump. He says, I don't mind trade. Uh, I'm a free trader. I'm a very conservative person. They say he can't be conservative. He doesn't believe in free trade. I don't believe in free trade. I believe in really, really, really smart trade where we can come out on top. So that's what I believe. All right. Uh, and that's a question at the end. All right. So that kind of goes back, Dr. Clark, to what you were saying about uh, what Trump feels that he's a better negotiator and come up with better deals. Yeah, I think that there's uh, a sort of uh, assumption at the core of that argument that U.S. negotiators give too much away and that the U.S. could pull far more out of these agreements. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm honestly not sure that that's the case. Uh, I've, you know, talked with some negotiators in the past. I, I, I've talked with people on the European side, for instance, that are involved uh, with the, the TTIP negotiations. I don't think anyone thinks that U.S. trade negotiators just give away, you know, the Leave it on the table. Right. In fact, I think there's the opposite impression, and particularly within NAFTA, that oftentimes the U.S. really does exert its will and pursues its interests maybe too much, at least in the interest of... of uh, you know, uh, laying the groundwork for further uh, relations in the future. But that that's obviously uh, the assumptions of, of Donald Trump, which is that we can get more. Um, I don't know that he's thinking of any particular agreement when he says that. He'll oftentimes cite them, such as NAFTA, but it's a general impression that the U.S. has more strength uh, with which it can leverage in order to secure in even better terms. Hillary Clinton uh, supports NAFTA does not support CAFTA. What's CAFTA? CAFTA was the Central American Free okay. Trade Agreement. All right. Uh, and uh, Trump does not support either one. Dr. Dolan, that quote from uh, uh, Clinton saying any trade deal has to produce jobs and raise wages and increase prosperity and protect our security. What's that mean? Um, well, well, we, 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 we should go back to something that we had talked about before when it comes to trade and Hillary Clinton. Remember, she, re she reversed course 
on TPP, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. She's the, she's the author of the so-called Pivot to Asia, a very famous article in Foreign Policy magazine in 2011, where she is arguing that the United States needs to rebalance its resources, military, economic, and cultural, to the Asia-Pacific region. And a key portion of that article was her endorsement of expanding trade opportunities to Asia and Pacific. But then when she ran for president, that be, that did not become politically convenient for her in, in the 2016 uh, primary, especially against uh, Senator Sanders. So it, wasn't no, it was no longer politically sustainable. So she reversed course, putting her on the opposite side uh, of uh, President Obama. And hence, you see that play out over the Democratic platform right now. But for the most part, it's, it's politically feasible and advantageous for her to at least oppose in the short term uh, uh, TPP. You know, and by the way, uh, for those waiting on hold, we'll be with you in just a moment. Um, something you just said, politically expedient, and that's been one of the criticisms of uh, Hillary Clinton over the years is that uh, she's done what politically helps her. She's not a whole lot different than a lot of other uh, politicians in in that area. Um, But when she was talking about raising wages, I assume she's talking about in those countries where we do have trade. Uh, But I don't think that Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, I I don't know, it's hard for me to say, and I want to get your opinions on this, think we can go back to the days when American manufacturing dominated and that... uh, you know, we shut down anything, any manufacturing overseas, clothing, for example, electronics, uh, automobiles, that America is going to dominate in those areas again. Does anyone really believe that? I I think you're right. I don't know. I, I wonder a lot in terms of, uh, you know, when Donald Trump is uh, speaking to supporters who are opposed to free trade, you know, really the, the ground that a lot of people are upset with it is the loss of jobs. Right. Right. And so and that's under totally understandable. Right. Absolutely. And, and that I mean, that's clearly something that happens in some sectors. People do lose jobs. And so the question then is, is when he's going to negotiate a better deal, is that going to involve somehow negotiating terms where there's not as much of a loss of American jobs? So we still have free trade, but we're not losing jobs. And the question is, how do you do that then? And the only uh, avenue I could think of in which you could try and achieve that is to ensure the other side basically mandates higher wages to disincentivize manufacturers from exporting jobs abroad. But that's actually been the strategy of the Obama administration. Uh, and, and how a Trump administration would accomplish that when we haven't seen, I mean, when we've seen varying degrees of success under previous administrations remains somewhat unclear. We're talking about tariffs, and we really haven't talked about China a whole lot, but uh, when we come back, that's what we'll do. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about what foreign policy may look like under a President Donald Trump or a President Hillary Clinton on today's program. Our guest, Dr. Nicholas Clark, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Susquehanna University, and Dr. Christopher Dolan, Professor of Politics and Director of Global Studies at Lebanon Valley College. We'd like you to join in the conversation. What do you think it would look like? What are your biggest foreign policy concerns? Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WIT. TF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Let's go to Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jim. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes. Uh, I'm, 
on the subject of foreign policy, I certainly have some differences uh, with Hillary Clinton. I think she's been kind of uh, disingenuous on TPP. She initially supported it, and now she's against it. But, you know, the way I look at the, the, the candidate's stances on foreign policy, it's basically the difference between an adult foreign policy and a juvenile foreign policy. Donald Trump uh, wants us to do things like uh, raise tariffs uh, against uh, China and, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, things that are just totally unrealistic. If you talk to economists about the root causes of the Great Depression, uh, many of them uh, will say that more than anything else, it was the fact that all of the different Western democracies were raising tariffs, therefore trade ground to a halt, and all of the Western democracies spun into uh, a depression. And, uh, you know, this, this is the sort of thing Donald Trump wants to do. It's been disavowed by, by people who have studied this sort of thing. You know, the, uh, Donald Trump is uh, the presumptive nominee of the conservative policy, and his policies, in particular on on, on uh, foreign policy, are the least conservative policies I can imagine. They're radical policies, and they're extremely dangerous policies. So if I have to choose between somebody who's been a little bit of a flip-flopper and maybe not terribly consistent, but has an overall well-thought-out, consistent policy on trade versus somebody who has just thrown out these uh, insane, if I may use that word, uh, policies like like drawn up uh, like thrown up uh, trade barriers. Uh, you know that's an easy choice. All right, thank so. you very much for your call. Okay, he brought up Jim brought up, and we can get into a lot of different issues there. But uh, Jim brought up tariffs, and that's what I did want to discuss. Uh, Donald Trump has proposed uh, putting tariffs on imposing tariffs on. China in particular, I'm not sure about the, the other uh, trade partners that we have out there as well, um, saying that he said that China has gotten off too easily. They've, you know, the manufacturing jobs that uh, China has taken and really some of the other countries around the world, that this is how he would fight that. Dr. Dolan, what about tariffs? I I think if we were to raise tariffs, well, first of all, I don't know if that would be consistent with our commitments in the World Trade Organization, but also I think that that would disrupt life in the United States. It would make life more expensive for the middle class and the lower and lower middle classes in this country when wages have remained flat over the last 30 years for, for many of our citizens. To raise tariffs would be to raise costs on uh, fuel, consumer goods and services and so on and so forth. And with the acceleration of international economic interdependence since the Great Depression, I think that that would just be far too costly. And if if the Brexit vote in Great Britain uh, is is any indication, markets do not like uncertainty. And we uh, they like consistency and stability. And I think that's far too much risk to the international economy if we were to raise tariffs. What, what do you think, Dr. Clark? Well, I think that there's there again here there's a sort of an assumption that we can act in one way and that the losers on the other side will sort of roll over and take it right that there's going to be too great an incentive for them to go along with what we want or too much to lose if they don't um, and so when you're talking about China you have that assumption on one end that we can raise tariffs and that it's not going to come back and hurt Americans because presumably they're not going to react in kind but on the other hand uh, uh, much of Trump's rhetoric also suggests that China's very strong that they're not quite as strong as we are yet but that they're getting there right and so we need to view them as a threat well if they're as strong as he assumes they're not just going to uh, respond 
kindly or do what we They're want. They're not going to roll over. They're not going to roll over. They're going to also respond in kind, and we're going to see potentially the start of a trade war. Uh, and that's when it comes back and has potentially negative consequences for Americans. Mm. Uh, you know, with China, and, you know, one of the things that they've talked about is how uh, the, the value of the Chinese yen uh, compared to the American dollar and that uh, well, it's not just Donald Trump talking about this. There have been a lot of people who have talked about how China, China needs to stop uh, manipulating the currency. What about that? Well, I think there's there's something to that. I think, though, at the same time, it's not uncommon for countries to do that. In fact, the United States was engaged in such policies, you know, under the Bush administration, and really is always, to a certain level, engaged in those policies. That's that's the big critique of uh, one of the big critiques of the EU, and particularly from the viewpoint of Greece, which is that because countries no longer control their own currency, everyone's on the euro, or at least everyone, mm -hmm. most of the countries were, that they they no longer have a, a an economic instrument with which they can try and and promote trade and, and promote their own goods. So yes, China does that. Yes, it's to the harm and detriment of other countries. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's a fairly common practice. Mm -hmm. Has Hillary Clinton talked about China that much? Uh, not not that much. No, no, she she hasn't. Uh, as Secretary of State, when uh, right. she was the right. author of the you know the the uh, the Asia rebalance uh, in U.S. foreign policy, but for the most part, she she hasn't. She mm -hmm. hasn't. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, immigration. And this is really the day that Donald Trump announced his candidacy. This is what got uh, most of the attention when he talked about uh, illegal immigrants coming from uh, Mexico and uh, that many of them were criminals. And you know, from day one, and I, I maintain this, that uh, Trump has driven the narrative by you know, making statements like that that got so much media coverage that uh, day after day after day when he would make a statement that uh, we're not used to hearing during a presidential mm -hmm. campaign, it got a lot of media attention. A lot of people criticized that uh, the media for not asking uh, tougher questions, especially early on. But let's talk about immigration. Uh, let's talk about Hillary Clinton first. What would a immigration policy look like under a Hillary Clinton? Well, I, I think what she would do is she would try to, I mean, she she's going to get uh, a, a, a Supreme Court pick. And, and I think that the recent Supreme Court decision um, uh, striking down President Obama's executive order on immigration, I think what she's going to try to do is sort of implement that in some type of uh, another form of a, of a unilateral executive order or introduction of new legislation that sort of um, brings, uh, not only encourages uh, Im immigration from 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 Mexico, but but also really is aimed at the dreamers. I think who are also going to be potential voters, people who were so, born in this country to mm -hmm. uh, parents who were in the country illegally. Yeah, and I I think that uh, that's going to be the centerpiece of of her immigration policy is this, is a sort of a continuation of the Obama administration. But and here's a quote. Uh, she says, if Congress refuses to act as president, I would do everything possible under the law to go even further than President mm -hmm. Obama. Dr. Clark, that sounds like the use of more executive orders. If that's available to her, that's the question right now. Well, yeah, yeah the court says, may have uh, something mm -hmm. to say about that. But uh, that sounds like uh, even she's even a little more assertive than what President Obama, even though she wants to continue what the president has, has pursued. 
Yeah, I think you could see a decline in deportations. That's something that has, has uh, been a subject of, of criticism for the Obama administration. Um, and so you could see her maybe reverse course a little bit on that. Although, I, again, I'm not, I don't think that there are any signals. But if you're talking about somehow easing up on the issue a little bit, that's, that's an area where there'd be room to do so. Mm-hmm. And I could see the political fights down the road. I mean, that uh, already has become a huge issue for Republicans, the use of executive orders. Uh, and a, a great example of how uh, polarized and how the two parties have not worked together in the last eight years. Uh, and Donald Trump's uh, quote, we're going to do a wall. We're going to have a big, fat, beautiful door on the wall. We're going to have people come in, but they're going to come in legally. Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Um, most people look at this say that that's not realistic, even though voters, there are many voters in the Republican primaries who seem to like this idea. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he knows his constituency, right? If you've been... If you've had a job in manufacturing for years and then all of a sudden you're fired and the only job available to you is a casino or is something that pays you significantly less in your neighborhood, you're going to be frustrated by that, especially if you're caught in the globalization trap. You're too old to go back to school. You're too young to retire. So he knows that there are millions of voters out there who are frustrated and that while not be who knows if that could literally become a coherent policy, but it makes for good politics. And so he knows his constituency very well, and he wants to harness it. question I've always asked about this proposal is Mexico is going to pay for the wall. How is that going to happen? Well, I don't, I don't think they will. And <laughs> I suspect that you he don't knows think? it. I, I do think that the – it's interesting because it actually just made it into the uh, party platform for the Republican mm-hmm. Party. Um, that made it into the platform? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're, I did not hear that. It was just reported this morning. Yeah. So, Dr. Dolan, what you were saying earlier about the platform kind of following a lot of the proposals of Trump – uh, that that's one of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. It it seems as though the Republican Party is becoming the sort of the party of Donald Trump, and I don't know if necessarily Republican elites and the so-called establishment would agree with that. Mm-hmm. I I do think the wall is important, though, in that uh, even if you fully accept it's unrealistic, and maybe some of his supporters do, it's a signal about a reversal on that policy issue. You know, so maybe the, the wall isn't possible. It likely isn't. It may um, be a metaphor. It's, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. his his supporters know that he's going to reverse course, even if he's not going to do that. And that's what they want to see. And so it's not completely disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Let's take some phone calls here. We have, uh, let's see, Philip from Carlisle is on the line. Philip, you're on the air. Howdy. Hi. So this actually is sort of relevant to what my question is about. Uh, with building the wall in Mexico, that getting them to pay for it is sort of nice in theory. I don't believe that it's actually possible, uh, mainly because it violates, you know, international or national sovereignty for Mexico by forcing them to build the wall, which they're not really interested in. Uh, but as a businessman, if you propose certain things, it looks a lot more friendly than if, for example, another international body tells you you're going to do something. Do you think uh, how Donald Trump's been almost conducting himself more like an international businessman as opposed to a world leader, if that would have negative impact on our foreign policy? Hmm. Very good question. Thank you for your call. Gentlemen, what do you think? Yeah, I suspect so. I think that there's a lot of anxiety on the part of other world leaders, and you just have to look to the leaders of Mexico as, as one indicator of that who have 
you know, the current president as well as past presidents have responded very negatively to, to uh, Mr. Trump's suggestions. And so I think, you know, ultimately, uh, if, if uh, Mr. Trump's elected president, uh, he will be taken seriously because he'll be the leader of the United States. Uh, but at the same time, there there's an awful lot of uh, trepidation on the part of other global leaders looking at him right now, and I don't think necessarily just because he's a businessman, but rather because a lot of of, of a lot of the rhetoric and, and promises that he's offering. I want to pass something along here. Uh, Sean House, who is the uh, state chair of the Libertarian Party and is running for uh, Congress in the 16th district, uh, wants to know the guest opinion on Gary Johnson's foreign policy. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Libertarian presidential candidate. Uh, thinks it's good to have another person in the mix other than Hillary and Trump. Now, let me just put it this way. Um, here's my thinking on that. We have reached out to the Gary Johnson campaign uh, on a couple of occasions and still have hopes that uh, we'll be able to get him on the air. But many times we have to base what we talk about on, on you know, what kind of support is out there and in the polls. Gary Johnson doesn't show up in very many polls. Now, maybe that's because his name is not included in those polls. But put it this way, I don't know how familiar you are with Gary Johnson's foreign policy, but I will say that it is something that uh, we do plan to uh, to cover in the future. So uh, uh, stay tuned for that, because quite frankly, I'd like to hear what he has to say, not only about foreign policy, about some other issues as well, because let's face it, there are some people who are looking for alternatives. Let's go back to the phone now. Barry is in Lancaster. Barry, you're on the air. Yes, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I think your guests are missing some important aspects of, uh, of Clinton's uh, candidacy. Uh, Clinton is a hawk. She's a very aggressive interventionist. She supported the invasion of Iraq. She was the main cheerleader in the Obama administration for the invasion of Libya. These have been disasters, foreign policy disasters. Uh, she supported the uh, the coup in the Ukraine, and that's turned into a huge mess. Um, so the, the Clinton legacy in foreign policy is really dreadful. Now, in regard to NATO, uh, NATO has been a very provocative force, moving missiles and arms right up against Russia's borders. And this has been notwithstanding the desire of Russia to have good relations with the West. And we're closer to nuclear war at the moment than we've been since 1963, and Clinton wants more of that. So I am not a Trump supporter. I'm an independent, raised Republican, often vote Democrat, but I will not vote for Clinton. I am looking for somebody else to vote for who has a non-interventionist foreign policy. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Gentlemen. Uh, I I do agree with. I mean, we 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 did say at the right. beginning of the broadcast she'd be more, she'd be more assertive and yeah. and and aggressive and certainly muscular. I think that um, Hillary Clinton is actually closer to John McCain than Barack Obama on foreign policy. I think that if she were to be elected president, you would see for uh, the the caller um, Barry raised Syria and uh, uh, Libya. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Libya and Ukraine. I think that uh, in Ukraine, I think that she would provide probably more lethal force to the government in Ukraine and do it in a more accelerated fashion. 
in Syria, I think that she would probably impose a no-fly zone over Syria and possibly threaten to target the Assad regime. However, there are balance of power issues, obviously, with Russia, which supports the regime. But the caller did identify Libya. That's what we identify with her. I mean, beyond Benghazi, uh, she really was influential, along with Susan Rice and Samantha Power, in lobbying the president to uh, encourage NATO to intervene. Um, the problem was the plan afterwards for what to do once the Gaddafi regime collapsed. Uh, the Libyans did not want an international presence in the country, and that became a showpiece for the non-intervention in Syria. Look what could happen with a fourth war. There's been such chaos and disaster in Libya. So there was a non-intervention in Syria, but we see the consequences of a non-intervention in Syria right now if you're a, if you're a Clinton supporter. Would you agree with Barry's uh, assertion or identifying uh, Clinton as a hawk? Um, I think that, I mean, it, you know, she, she actually says now, and again, I, I'm not sure uh, how consistent this was with the reality at the time, that she discouraged the Obama administration from uh, supporting the, you know, efforts to, to remove Mubarak in Egypt. So I think she can be a hawk. I think she's somewhat selective in it. Uh, and at least this is her position. And she's she's choosing on a case-by-case -case basis based on what she thinks is in uh, the sort of U.S. security interests. I think unquestionably she would take a more aggressive posture toward Russia. That's that's been her signal there. And you would see that in Ukraine. Um, you would see that through probably greater U.S. support of NATO than what we what we have now. Okay, um, so what form uh, more aggressive toward Russia? I mean, uh, and we throw in what Trump has said about Putin, that he says this is a guy that he admires and he can work with. Uh, how would uh, Clinton be more aggressive toward Russia? I think Clinton uh, doesn't admire Putin. I think she <laughs> sees him as a clear threat to the West, that his ambitions are such that you know, he 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 wants to more or less reassert a Russian influence on a global level, um, and so I think she thinks to a certain extent he needs to be contained, um, and that would mean diplomatically. That would mean through. Um, uh, I don't think she's going to take military action of any sort, but she's going to arrange U.S. relationships in a, in a way to try and constrain the spread of Russian influence. Dr. Dolan. Um President Obama famously drew a line in the sand that that line was crossed and uh, one of the criticisms was that uh, the president, the administration didn't do anything. If Hillary Clinton drew that line in the sand, would it be different? I, I think so. Uh, in uh, the, the famous red line, uh, uh, if Assad uses chemical weapons uh, against his own citizens, and he eventually did, and John Kerry was Secretary of State at the time, and, and he had lobbied the president that our credibility is on, is on the line here. Uh, when the United States failed to intervene in Syria and, and target the, the Assad regime, many critics of the Obama administration would suggest, well, look at what we have now. We have, uh, uh, soon after that, IS uh, rampaged across uh, Syria, took advantage of the Syrian civil war, moved into Iraq. Uh, now we have an international refugee crisis, which um, has impacted especially the countries in the region, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan in particular, millions of refugees, and they, they've also um, made their way to Europe. And so we've seen the cascade of that non-intervention. When America does not intervene, if you're a Clinton supporter, then there are these interconnected sort of consequences that take place. And she would even connect that to, well, right-wing movements around the world that have had a counter-reaction to, to refugees and migrants and so on and so forth. So these issues are all interconnected.
Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, the, and I go back to this uh, comparison of the two candidates. The question was asked of the two candidates: Should we topple Syrian President Assad? And uh, Clinton said yes, mm-hmm. and Trump said no. So there is a that's a, one of the big differences between the two. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about the foreign policies and. Obviously, we have to speculate here. The foreign policies of a President uh, Clinton or a President Trump. Our guest today, Dr. Christopher Dolan, professor of uh, politics and director of global studies at Lebanon Valley College, and Dr. Nicholas Clark, assistant professor of political science at Susquehanna University. And we obviously uh, welcome your phone calls as well. We've had some really good callers today who have made a a lot of good points, and we'd like to hear from you. What are the foreign policy issues that... uh, concern you the most. Uh, what do you think about a President uh, Trump, a President Clinton, when it comes to foreign policy? 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Or you can leave a question or a comment uh, on uh, WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. A couple emails that we've received. Listener says, I don't think President Hillary Clinton would be more assertive than President Obama. I think she was disillusioned by the failures of our European and Libyan partners in the Libyan civil war. Do you think so? Uh, I I think that that intervention is I mean, it's so identifiable with with her. She pushed for it. I think Obama, in his heart of hearts, didn't did not want to intervene, but uh, in order to avert a humanitarian disaster, decided to. Um, again, the problem there was the Arab League. Uh, NATO, the UN um, wanted to go in after Gaddafi was toppled, and the Libyans did not want that presence. And the Obama administration did did not send in a force that could help stabilize the country and provide some measure of stability. Uh, and remember, the American public was also were extremely war weary at that oh, particular at that time. Point, yeah, 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 and probably still we still are, mm-hmm. even though the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have drawn down. Here's another email. Uh, Nobody knows what a President Trump would do. He's all over the place in his speeches. He'll leave the boring policy issues to his underlings, and we have no idea which underlings he'll choose. Well, we do know one thing. Whenever he opens his mouth, he'll alienate our friends and motivate our enemies. Uh, Dr. Clark, this kind of gets back to America's place in the world. I think back to the Bush administration, and by the time the Bush administration ended, uh, there were so many people who said that, um, you know, America's reputation around the world has been ruined, or at least it's been tarnished and it's it's been damaged. I think that was one of the priorities of uh, President Obama was to try to repair that. Now, eight years later, we don't know whether it's been repaired or not. But still, the point that the, the emailer makes about alienating our friends and motivating our enemies and America's place in the world. How do you see that? And we'll talk about Trump first and then uh, about about Clinton. Well, I think Trump does have a couple principles that we know would guide his foreign policy because he's articulated them enough times in enough different manners. Uh, one is that he doesn't think that democracy can simply be transplanted to what he would call undemocratic areas, right? And this is and that was one of the, the characteristics of the Bush administration that 
try to uh, you know, bring democracy to the Middle East. Right. I mean, and in some ways, that's a policy that was continued by the Obama administration and, and predated the Bush administration. And I think he he's very skeptical of any U.S. efforts to try and promote the spread of democracy uh, to specific countries that can't host it. He's also, I mean, he, he has not done it in a very tactful manner. And he's, I think, rightfully drawn a lot of criticism for his uh, expressions of admiration for different dictators. But there's a principle at the core of that and one that has motivated U.S. foreign policy in the past, which is that you can achieve greater stability through dictators. That, for instance, in Libya or in Iraq, it would be better off if there was a firm hand there that was preventing massive violence and instability that could spread to the rest of the region. And so the interests of the United States and the interests of the region and the rest of the world would have been better off with a dictator in place than what we have now. Even Um, though those two dictators killed their own people, were harsh and there was a lot of no freedom. I, I don't. I know you're not advocating that, but I'm just saying that uh, that was the choice that uh, many American presidents have had to make over the years in our foreign policy. Are we willing to look the other way with the human rights abuses and uh, the lack of freedom? Um, so that American foreign policy is stable. Agree with that? I, I I do I do to a certain extent, but embracing Hussein and Gaddafi in, in the very public way Donald Trump has, uh, I, I think is is dangerous. I mean, the, who, Iraq was at one point on the state sponsored list of terrorism. He did finance suicide uh, uh, attackers in. We went to war the with middle, the country. Exactly, yeah. I mean, committed genocide against the Kurds, repressed the Shia in the south of the country. Uh, so there are tremendous consequences for buddying up to really despicable leaders. All right. So what would America's place in the world, how would the rest of the world view the United States under a Clinton or a Trump presidency? I mean, we already have foreign governments, foreign leaders that have been critical of Trump. I mean, in Britain, they're talking about not allowing Trump into the country. I think that may be a little bit extreme uh, at, at that point. But... What about America's place in the world? And then this kind of goes back to all the things we've been talking about. Dr. Dolan? You know, it's it's interesting. If um, you read uh, Hillary Clinton's background, her, her father was a Navy petty officer. And uh, she has a sort of heartland view of American foreign policy, that American foreign policy can be a force for good. You can do interventions right, especially humanitarian interventions. So I think she's really embraced this notion that the United States can be a force for good if it upholds the end, it, its end of the bargain by supporting its allies and so on and so forth. That there's a tremendous return on investment for the United States by being a uh, by by embracing. Uh, American leadership and being very forceful about it. And Donald Trump has sort of questioned that. So I do think that for the most part, she she looks at the world from uh, a very, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, I don't want to say conservative, but a, a very uh, pro-U.S. Tra- as a force for good. It's yeah, it's a very traditional, very conventional right, approach. Right, right. Okay, let's take some phone calls because we are getting a lot of calls here in the last few minutes of the program. Uh, let's go to Eric in York. Eric, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, um, I just have a criticism of Donald Trump. Um, he has not been at all uh, clear or specific about any of his foreign policies. Um, he's continued. I saw him last night talk about how he was going to make Mexico build the wall. That's become part of his cheering, uh, part of his uh, stump speech, uh, if you will. Um, and because he's not been clear at all or specific about his policies and his uh, uh, surrogates that he sends out are not clear or specific about his policies, 
um, it takes people like the guests that you have on today to try to extrapolate um, what he means. Um, and um, we don't actually know if he means anything that your guests are saying um, either way because he hasn't been specific. And it really, really goes to me to the heart of the fact that uh, there's a sector in America that has lost all uh, – um, uh, has, does, doesn't think that people uh, who make foreign policies are credible at all, and they think that it's very simple. And um, we have lost, um, there's a segment of uh, a society that has lost uh, all uh, uh, faith in um, the elites in our society, and um, he is just a prime example of that on the foreign policy level. That's all I have to say. Thanks for taking my call. All right. Thank you very much for your call, Dr. Clark. Well, I think, uh, I mean, there's there's been a loss of faith in political elites in general, not just amongst uh, foreign policy elites, I think. Um, certainly there's there's this this uh, uh, idea that I don't think is wholly inaccurate, that there's a consensus between the two parties, and so you're going to see broadly similar policies pursued. I think you see that in the academic literature, and I think you see that within public opinion. Uh, and Trump has echoed that. So I, I think that the caller was sort of grouping Trump in with these foreign policy elites. I wasn't quite sure, but I think was grouping them in with the foreign policy elites of which we should be critical. But Trump himself has said that, look, I'm not going to seek out the counsel and follow the wisdom of this sort of vast body of diplomats and foreign policy elites in D.C. that have been here forever, because I think they are who has led us on the wrong path. And so if you if you are questioning the sort of conventional wisdom that has dictated foreign policy in D.C., uh, that, that's been a hallmark of Trump's campaign to do so as well. Mm-hmm. And let's take another phone call here from uh, Pat in Mount Joy. Pat, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Scott. Uh, thanks so much for taking my call. Yes, I love welcome. your show. I listen to you every day. Thank you. Um, the thing about Trump that is just I cannot figure out is that he'll say, for instance, that uh, he's going to defeat ISIS, and that he knows more than the generals, and he's so belligerent when it comes to that, and yet at the same time, he says, we're not going to get involved with nation-building, and we're going to pull back from international inst- uh, institutions like NATO, you know, he's going to pull out of P- you know, PTT, and it's so like, wait a minute, you can't have it both ways, you can't be the leader and then pull in your horns and make America great again by America first isolationism. Thank you very much for your call, Pat. Dr. Dole? Yeah, it's interesting that your caller makes, uh, the caller makes several really good points. Uh, he brought up the contradictions in, in Trump's or inconsistencies in his positions. And he really doesn't take, he, he hasn't made policy proposals. He's just sort of taken positions uh, through messaging and bombast. But uh, he has talked at one time about how America will be respected again amongst its allies, yet he's willing to walk away from NATO. So I think that's, a, that's an interesting example. And he's also fashioned himself as his own best foreign policy advisor. So that's something I think that the American voter sort of really needs to take into consideration. Uh, the, the language that we heard in the primary of the system being rigged, I think, sort of plays into that sort of distrust of elites and so-called establishment. Um, you know, we, we, we've mentioned it. We've mentioned ISIS, but uh, when we're talking about foreign policy, ISIS is probably the biggest threat that the United States and the free world uh, faces today. What about these candidates when it comes to fighting ISIS and fighting terrorism? 
Uh, Dr. Clark, what about you, your thoughts on it? Well, I think the previous caller was right that to a certain extent what we're trying to do is extrapolate what Trump would do because it's it's not always clear. I, my sense on ISIS based on his statements and the sort of general principles is that there would be something of a pullback. And I think one specific policy tack he might take might be to let Russia handle the problem. He has said as much. And given the sort of positive opinions he's expressed to Putin before and his willingness to want to work with Russia, I could see that as a strategic uh, uh, choice on his part to basically farm the problem out and specifically to farm it out to the Russians. Uh, but again, I, I mean, if you if you take other statements he's made, it's essentially we're going to uh, bomb them as much as is needed in order to eliminate them. I think that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton would likely continue along the path we have now, which has been, at least in terms of uh, uh, containing ISIS's presence uh, in the Middle East, is 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 been somewhat successful. I mean, we the the media reports this last week are that ISIS itself is is starting to try and change its entire tactical approach and communicate to its followers that it's likely to lose its position where it exists now. And so we need to start to think about what the next strategic moves will be. Um, and that's a signal to me that the the strategy, not just on the U.S. part, but on the part of, of U.S. allies, has been somewhat successful in the long run. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what, what Hillary Clinton is suggesting is you can't just sort of walk away from these particular regions, especially in the area of intelligence gathering, tracking, uh, using military force in the region in concert and in association with uh, uh, the U.S.'s allies and partners in the Middle East, for example, we would lose a tremendous amount of access and influence in our fight against ISIS if we were to sort of walk away from Saudi Arabia. Uh, That would be um, uh, Hillary Clinton's approach. Donald Trump's approach, again, is sort of bombastic. We need to be able to sort of walk away from the table, uh, even with respect to something like dealing with uh, the Islamic State. And the danger of the Islamic State is not necessarily in its... its ability to hold territory, but its ability to inspire through social media uh, terror attacks around the world. And that's the sort of scary part for people. Many would argue that uh, the Islamic State is not an existential threat to the United States, that Russia and China are big, big, huge, major powers are. But the scary thing about IS is that it does have this ability to sort of disrupt and scare and target civilians through its inspiration, not necessarily through its tactical leadership. Well, we've seen examples, unfortunately, of it in the last six months, uh, San Bernardino, mm-hmm. uh, Orlando. Um, of course, you don't know exactly what uh, you know that the motivation was there, but we did hear that uh, the shooter was uh, was motivated in part by uh, mm-hmm. being uh, pro ISIS. So we only have about ninety seconds left. Uh, we jumped around covering a lot of uh, territory, but uh, let's get back to that original question. After our conversation today, what should voters think about the foreign policy of these two candidates, Dr. Dolan? About 30 seconds? I would say with Hillary Clinton, it's um, more about expanding the status quo, uh, continuing America's support for international uh, economic and security architecture that has been in place since the end of the Second World War. With uh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump would argue that that has sort of deteriorated and they no longer further American interests in the world. And if you want to take a different course, let's experiment with the consensus and sort of be tough, even with our own allies. Dr. Clark? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that uh, that under President Clinton that um, there might be slightly different policies, but that the general approach 
uh, and values are going to be the same. And it's it's hard to say specifically how it would be different under President Trump, but it very much would be different than, than what we've seen. Mm. I want to thank both of you for being with us today. And uh, we hope to do this throughout the year uh, leading up to the November election, look at uh, kind of broad issues, but then talk about some, some specifics as well. Dr. Nicholas Clark is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Susquehanna University, and Dr. Christopher Nolan, or Dolan, I'm sorry, a Professor of Politics and Director of Global Studies at Lebanon Valley College. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank, Thank you, you, Scott. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we do this about once a year, and it's always uh, a program that seems to be popular, and that's talking about genealogy, looking into your family history questions that uh, you may have that's coming up on tomorrow's program.